Welcome to episode 18 of Teacher's Lift. In this episode, our hosts, Tess and Phil, are chatting with Rick Klofczewski from the Faculty of Law at Hong Kong U. Rick is a pioneer of innovative pedagogical approaches on the Hong Kong U campus, and today he's chatting with us about the benefits of using authentic assessments. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed making it for you. Now I'll turn it over to Tess and Phil. Good luck, guys. Welcome back to the uh, Teacher's Lift. Very happy to be welcoming back uh, Tess Hogue. So welcome back, Hi, Tess. Phil. Back Hi, Phil. Back by popular demand, right? That's true. Yeah, everyone, wants to, everyone wants to hear your voice on this, uh, on this podcast. <laughs> uh, we're very lucky today, Tess. We're going to be talking to Rick Glofczewski. I'm going to give a very brief introduction, although this could be the I'm whole really pod- looking This could be the whole it, podcast, yeah. just introducing the guy. So, exactly. Uh, law teacher at uh, the University of Hong Kong for more than 25 years. He's taught uh, primarily tort law, but also criminal law, medical law, labor law. Um, Obviously the editor-in-chief of the Hong Kong Law Journal. So a lot of uh, credentials there, but perhaps of slightly more interest to us is a lot of his work done in assessment and pedagogy. So he's actually a co-editor of Scaling Up Assessment for Learning in Higher Education, uh, which is part of the series Enabling Power of Assessment. So uh, a lot of experience there. And I think another interesting thing about Rick is he's got the full suite of teaching awards. So you're probably aware, those at Hong Kong, you will be aware that there are uh, different awards for outstanding teaching, for distinguished teaching. Uh, there's an inaugural, there's a, an inaugural Hong Kong wide university grants committee teaching excellence award. He's won all of those. And I believe, or Rick can tell us now, it was another award of a university distinguished teacher. Was, was that given by Singapore University, uh, Rick, or that was from Hong Kong? Well, we should, I shouldn't be talking about these things, Philip, but <laughs> that is uh, simply an, 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 uh, the HKU award that you can win after a period of five years if you okay. qualify. So that is another HKU award. I, I did uh, do some work in, and, and uh, was invited as the inaugural um, keynote speaker at the when they founded their teaching um do they call that body now their the, the teaching foundation or something to that uh, teaching academy okay. so, so i went there uh, to do that for a few days uh, i do get around a little bit by dint of you know these recognitions and whatnot but i think we can drop that subject <laughs> <laughs> yeah but so far phil you have forgotten to say the most important part and that is your pool partner up from the um 15th floor. Yeah, I was going to say snook, uh, snooker. You're KK right. Lurks or snooker, yes. <laughs> that so, one will be the side test. That one will put yep. aside. Uh, <laughs> I've, not, I've not managed to beat him yet. But, oh, um, I was just going to ask you who, who usually wins. <laughs> it's too good. It's too good. Um, okay, let's start. Just, I mean, just simple question, Rick, to, to, to get us started. I mean, a lot obviously been going on over the past few months. How, how have you been coping with uh, teaching and doing what you're doing during these interesting times well well Philip, I, I thank you i've been coping fairly well in part because uh the second semester was a teaching free semester for me uh, so i've been focusing on research however i have been supervising the tort course which 
as you know, is a compulsory yeah. large-scale course, 250 students. Uh, and I have I designed the assessments uh, for the course from start to finish. And also, I you know, including the assessments in the second semester, both a test and an examination. So I've been uh, having a lot to do with the course. I didn't teach weekly classes, um, but I helped design them. Uh, I had a few uh, Zoom meetings with the entire class in the lead up to the assessment. So I have a sense of what all that's about, but I didn't face the Zoom fatigue that a lot of you must have experienced, uh, you know, as you made your way through that semester. Still suffering from it now. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we certainly have. And you may recall that we actually moved to Zoom in the first semester in November, in toward the tail end of, you know, when protests and whatnot started to heat up on campus here. So I, I did some Zoom teaching in the in the first semester, and then I uh, we we had to postpone our assessment and move it. So so I had to we had to make adjustments, like all of you. We I too had to make adjustments of some sort or another, and, and sometimes at scale, in order to make it all work. And often I was not easy. I felt a little bit uneasy with what we were being asked to do. In what sense did you feel uneasy? Well, well, I, we were. Okay, you won't quote me on this, right? Just between us. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we received directions, you know, f from uh, those, you know, who are, you know, uh, empowered and and experienced in these things uh, as to how to run the rest of the course or how to do assessments and whatnot, I felt that a lot of the time didn't fit uh, many uh, sort of circumstances that, that say a particular course might face. Uh, and I would do things differently. I would probably have some other ideas regarding how assessment would be done. I don't think you can suddenly at one half way through a course, three quarters of the way through a course, you know, substitute examinations for essays or something like that so that you can, can, you can give a grade to the student. No, it has to be much more than that. And you know, the importance of the tying and aligning assessment with how students have learned, it, it cannot be overstated. And I, so I myself did what we could to maintain that alignment throughout, you know, even at some cost. Maybe that's quite a nice segue, Rick, to, to talk a little bit about this, uh, this course, uh, this talk course specifically, because there were a lot of uh, assessments there that you kind of looked at and changed over time. Um, you know, in light of what you just said there about, you know, aligning with the learning a little bit. I wonder if you could talk a little about some of your thinking that went into that course. What what was new about those assessments that you, you know, developed a few years back? Thank you, Philip. I, I, it's an off-told story, but it, each time I tell it, it just sort of comes out differently. But uh, I was not satisfied with the, uh, the, the design of the course, which was a course that, like all of us, you know, I inherited to some degree. And tort is, is a compulsory, you know, component of any law curriculum, so you have to teach to a syllabus. But it's often like these kinds of conventional, or, you know, compulsory uh, law courses are taught uh, in conventional ways. And uh, not much has changed over the decades or over the centuries. And there are reasons for it, but they're not good reasons. So I determined that we could do better, uh, that we could design the teaching and the learning and the assessment so that it would be uh, more meaningful to students of greater value to them and of greater use to them after they graduated. So, so I, and I learned all of this, you know, in a number of steps, including some research that we did uh, determining how law students in this law school are, are learning and how they are studying. So, so I, I found that using hypothetical questions, for instance, as your, as your major form of assessment, uh, isn't going to produce sustainable, effective learning. And so then I, when I started to think along those lines, I was stuck. How can you, what do you replace these hypothetical 
problems with. What you're talking about uh, constructing, um, you know, hypothetical cases, and, and I think this sort of intersects with what we're doing, is it's almost impossible to do this kind of uh, assessment without uh, language. And so the way that you express yourself in language is really important. Uh, how would you see that intersection between law and language? And that, is, of course, is of great interest to ourselves. Uh, yes, uh, as I think we will agree, our work, your work, focus of your work and our work in teaching law, you know, has uh, language is a vital role. Law, law students and lawyers read and then they write and they, they argue orally. Uh, so so it's, it's there for sure as a core tool of the, uh, of the profession. Uh, and uh, so we bear that in mind, or at least we should be bearing that in mind in our teaching and learning design and in, our, in the conduct of all learning activities so uh, but to, to the extent to which teachers do that is another matter because they tend to get lost in the content of their their, their lecture their their class that day now when we, we started here with the discussion about our the mentioned hypotheticals and this makes me think about what what I know what the lot what the, some of the your colleagues have been doing over the years at CAES uh, and and how they approached the teaching of English to law students. Yes, I remember that well because both Phil and myself were um, on the course. Phil, remember those days? Yeah. Yes. So uh, you know, for instance, if, if we look at the hypothetical teacher-designed hypothetical, uh, it's designed to trick students. It's designed to sort of disguise issues. So you have to read it and then you somehow deconstruct it, decode it. Uh, in order to get at the meaning and then produce the sort of analysis that the teacher is looking for. By virtue of that design, that it is actually there not to present the issues directly to the student, but to hide them, uh, then so much power is in the hands of the teacher. Uh, the teacher can insert an object or, or, or some element into the story and everything changes. It's a very powerful position to be in. And uh, I remember this vividly because I saw the absurdity of it when, I, when it occurred to me one time, decade and a half ago, when I was finding a hypothetical of a workman who had been found dead on the work site. And this is a hypothetical. A workman found dead on the, on the, on the work site. He had been, apparently fell off of the edge of the building, but it wasn't clear how that happened. Uh, and uh, then we asked the question of, was he wearing a safety harness that his employer provided? But then I found I could make the question altogether different, or in, I could enrich it by simply putting, inserting into the pocket of the dead workman some gambling receipts. Everything changed then. Every, everything changed in terms of the way that the, the direction of the question would go. Uh, and I thought, well, this is, this is really, this really causes the students to be, to be thinking a lot more about what the, what's on the teacher's mind than what's going on here. I mean, I know that students would ask themselves, what is Rick thinking here? And I didn't want them to do that because their learning should not be determined by uh, what I am thinking or what issues I have in mind for them to think about, but rather uh, it should be more uh, realistic. It should be more authentic and it should be neutral. Exactly. So now we get into the area of authentic assessment. This is something that's really been on my mind for a long time, ever since I went to your fantastic symposium. It, it had such a big... Uh, impact. Um, and, and that is, I think it's the same probably with you, Phil, is in our experience of teaching, 
we the students are watching us closely they want to know what is it exactly that you this particular teacher wants from me and what do i need to do to negotiate my way through this to get an a plus or, or whatever it is but and you brought up the issue of authentic assessment which is really quite a different idea altogether and it i think it takes the teacher out of that equation a bit. Could, could you um, go into that a bit more? Yes, yes. Well, firstly, I believe that we must assess as we teach and as we learn. We must assess how we require students to learn and, and, and how we teach. So for instance, we could not, as was suggested earlier in this semester, replace a certain kind of examination with just an, a research essay, because after all, we, we, we haven't learned we haven't been learning about research essays or how to do them then we shouldn't suddenly pop that on we must so so as you know we must align our learning activities that we require students to engage in with the assessment so we have to do that now if we want students to take away from the course take a take away from the course and take it forward into their professional lives we want them to take that learning with them uh, then we have to design the learning such that it has relevance to what students do afterwards. And, and this can only happen, I mean, it happens best, I believe, by examining what it is that the, the context of the profession or the, the world in which the students graduate, whether it's science or arts or law or architecture. So we look at that, we want students to become good at that sort of thing. So we, we examine that and then we try to find how, find out how we can then design learning so that it, it requires students to get involved with that sort of material while they're learning. Now, hypotheticals is an easy way. You can just make up any old story and then the students are exactly. working at the puzzle, trying to figure out what it is that the teacher wants out of this. But if we, and also the teacher's powerful, uh, the teacher's the sage on the stage in that environment, and it's not a very democratic form of learning. So I wondered, well, what, what can I do? So the solution came to me, you know, over time, I, I had actually been practicing a form of it already without really realizing it, but eventually came to me quite clearly that the best substitute for those hypotheticals was newspaper reports. I came to this because I had been observing how when you read about certain events that take place, whether you're an architect, whether whatever you, whatever you're teaching, you would read with greater interest news items that have something to do with your area of, of expertise or research. So, of course, all the daily newspaper constantly reports on events that involve tort law issues, tort being as broad as it is. But it also does the same with, say, architecture or with, with land. Uh, with with crime with, with uh, all sorts of things but, but you know we have to look for it so so when i saw that and i i used to be in, uh, take inspiration occasionally from events that would be reported in the news that i saw uh, in which i saw tort law implications so i would sort of like take a version of those and then make a hypothetical but now i realize why do that why not just put it there put it there in its unedited version it's the, for for a whole range of pedagogical uh, reasons one is that it takes me out of the equation. I'm no longer so powerful. It's what happened. It wasn't written by me, designed by me. It was designed by someone, a journalist, a reporter, who wrote it for an altogether different purpose, not, not of, to assess law students, but to inform the public. Now, uh, in a way, this is similar to the way that a client would enter a lawyer's office and, and seek help. The client would be able to convey the bare facts, a more or less neutral description of what happened, 
and then leave it to the lawyer to solve it. So how would you actually assess that? Uh, would the student nevertheless still have those expectations that there's somehow a correct answer at the end of uh, the analysis of the newspaper article? We can jump to that right now. Remember, it's a, it's a learning activity. So is what we utilize uh, every week of the school year in our lessons. So, so whether or not we have a lecture that week, whether we have a flip class, we will have either the flip class or tutorials and the focus of study is a, in each one is a news report, which, which, which I select because it depends on what subject or what topic we're studying that week. So to that extent, I have some control. I have to, you know, ensure, and I've got like 600 pages of material all, you know, uh, banked up from the South China Morning Post that I can draw from for these, uh, for these materials. So when it comes to the learning activities throughout the year, that's what they do. They get good at it. They get really good at reading news reports and, and working out that, for instance, not everything in this news report is relevant because it's not, whereas everything in a hypothetical is sort of relevant. It's all, it's all very compact. But here, you're just getting a story reported and there might be some quotes from some eyewitness or from the minister, the, the secretary for home affairs or somebody or other who was interviewed because of the tra nature of the tragedy. So you, you, you get to work through that yourself. And the students come to know very soon. It has nothing to do with me. And I make clear to them very early in the course, this has nothing to do with me. When I read this, I was like you. I don't know. I, I looked at that and I thought, man, wow, look at that. How will this be resolved? What, how, what are the various issues here? I, I am like you. So, so that we do that as part of our activities. Bear in mind uh, that also uh, there are assessed learning activities. And one of the central components of the TORT course for over 10 years now is something that I designed that, that I call uh, the Reflective Media Diary, which requires students monthly, three, three times a month or more often if they like, but to identify in the news, whether the Chinese language press or the English language press, news items that have something to do with the subject that we're, the topics that we're studying right now, they have to find it themselves, keep the diary, write an analysis of it within 48 hours on their own. So all of this is done by themselves, self-directed. And so here they are reading news, more news. Now imagine how this is connecting their thinking, their legal, their learning of the law with reality, with the community, with what's happening in Hong Kong. They're not just reading books and figuring out what does the teacher want. They are actually participating in community life. They are reading about it. They are arguing about it in the flip class, in the tutorials. So that by the time, so, and the reflective media diary carries 30% of the weight of the course. And so they're doing that all throughout the year by themselves. And by the time they come to the assessment, uh, the final examination, the so-called final examination, which carries 40 or 50%, depending on which other assessment options the student chose, they are well-versed in this technique. They are better than most lawyers at that stage. But what's the student reaction to that? I mean, it, it seems when you describe it, that there's, there's a lot more for the students to do than just sort of unpacking this hypothetical thing that the teacher gave them. But I mean, they, they see the value here of this extra kind of, you know, trying to sort out what's relevant, what's not relevant, trying to think for themselves about what this might refer to. I mean, what's the student reaction to, to all of this? Well, thanks, Philip. Um, there's a lot to say in response to that question. Oops, sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there with a long... <laughs> long... <laughs> Actually, students uh, uh, were puzzled as to how they could be expected to engage in diary work like that in the month of September when they hadn't studied any tort law. 
but I but but the assignment does begin in the first day of the first day of September. We haven't had a lecture on that yet, sir. Is is it's not uh, a position I would be sympathetic with, and I'm not. And they understand early why that is so. You've got your materials, you've got your textbook, you've got your 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 own high level of intelligence, and uh, you will also in the in the in the instructions and in the grade descriptors, it, it's stated clearly that in the first four to five weeks, great generosity, flexibility will be brought in the assessment of your work because we understand that you are learning, feeling your way. Be adventurous. Identify stories that may that may strike you as being tort law, but may in the end prove not to be tort law because there's no way, like say for instance, breach of privacy. Uh, so don't worry about that. So we, the instructions are very, you know, carefully drafted over the course of like a decade or so, so that it covers off all uh, worries, all ambiguities, uh, and students can get into it right away, and they do. And by and large. They really appreciate it uh, as a form of learning that is so distinct and so, uh, you know, not only different from what they do in the other courses, but uh, but one that they see a lot of value in. We have conducted a number of surveys. CETL has helped me uh, conduct surveys over the years. David Carlos uh, from uh, the Faculty of Education uh, conducted studies on the reflective media diary and uh, on um, other parts of my teaching, but the photo essay, but in it, but also the the reflective media diary. And so he has a book, almost a chapter. I was going to say the, it's a ex excellence in university assessment, right? That 2015 book. If anyone's interested in finding out more about Rick's work and and what David had done, yeah, I definitely suggest reading that book. Yeah, yes, and, and so you see there that that the students. I do value this kind of uh, work, this kind of thinking. There are, there's no objection. Of course, the problem that all teachers face when they introduce innovations or, you know, me methods that are different from their colleagues is that, you know, there are, you know, resistors. Some students will resist. Why do we have to do this? We don't do this in the other course. We have to keep a diary. You know, why, why this, that, or the other? Um, and and I think students, the students are resistant because they're. Uh, the way that the system is set up is, um, you know, there's a direct grade that they're aiming for. You know, yes. and, and at the back of their minds, they're always, uh, you yes. know, thinking that. And I don't know about you, Phil, but I, I was thinking, how do we sort of apply these kinds of principles to our own teaching? Because uh, I can see in the area of law, there's a direct... Uh, I don't know, correlation between the materials. You just say, go out into the news, find news articles. But I imagine if we said, go, asked our students, go out and find news articles on EAP, there's not going to be much out there, right? Philip, let me handle this one. Oh, I was about to Fantastic. jump in there, Rick. Uh, save, <laughs> you saved me. <laughs> uh, before I do so, I want to speak a little bit about but the phenomenon of resistance uh, test, uh, which uh, you also picked up on. Uh, about a year ago, I gave a keynote address. I think Philip was there. Uh, and uh, at a conference, it was Achieving Excellence in Education or something, Philip, wasn't it? What was That's it? right, yeah. Had a, yeah. Strange name. But a strange title, yeah. So, of course, whenever you're asked to talk about excellence, of course, you've got a whole bunch of questions to ask at the beginning. Like, what is excellence? What does it mean to you? Et cetera. But the subject of my keynote address was resistance. And how, when you strive for something that might bring you closer toward a higher standard, not necessarily excellence, but you know, when you do that, uh, you may find yourself 
viewed as an outlier, doing something that others aren't doing, and then you'll get resistance at all levels. You get it from the institution itself because they can't quite accommodate what you want to do. They don't even have a classroom space for you, which is something that I encountered with the flip when I introduced flip learning here at this university in 2014. There, there was no classroom for me. This is a brand new campus on, on the, the Centennial campus and there was no place for us to do that. We needed a flat surface. Uh, then, but the department had every, colleagues, co-teachers, Everyone looked and said, what? What are you, what are you proposing? No, sorry, we don't, uh, I'm busier. No, we, I don't do that. And the students as well would naturally resist, say, what is it we, we need to do? We go to a class, we, we, we don't have a lecture, we watch some videos. So there will be resistance. And so, you know, so well, these various stakeholders have to be won over. Uh, we have to be aware of that and we have, we have to be attuned to that. I am aware that, for instance, and David pointed this out, David Carlos, uh, that some students thought, well, the reflective media diary isn't weighted sufficiently highly because it, it takes up so much of our time that uh, we take time away from other courses or other parts of this course. So, so I heard that. that I, I hear, I'm listening, my ears are open. I'm always uh, alert to areas that can be improved and so of course I changed the weighting of that and I changed some of the rules to make it less time consuming for students but they by and large like that assignment uh, they, they, they like it uh, because it's personal uh, it's self-constructed they discover it they find it it's, it's in their hands they can do it every day if they want or they can do it three times a month or even twice a month uh, they, they can uh, compile a huge list and then reduce it to the final 10 submissions so that they have uh, because their list of items which they have analyzed, uh, you know, almost synchronously throughout the course of the year, uh, it's just sort of almost showcasing their learning. And, and then they know that. And they will be evaluated on, the, on how they have been able to address in the news reports selected and, and analyzed a broad range of tort law issues. So they're, they're, they're filling it out. Uh, and so they're just learning by themselves. And really, I've said it before, but I'm sure that I won't be quoted here. They don't need me. They almost, almost at the point where I can hand that over and say, you know, see you in, in, in April. Uh, I'm pretty sure that that, that isn't a very far off from the truth. So, so, so this, I think, is a major achievement and the goal of all teachers. I, again, here I'll be a little bit silly. To make yourself irrelevant. Exactly. Yes, I'm totally in agreement with you, although it's very hard to relinquish control uh, to, to some extent. Isn't right. It? But a lot, of, a lot of colleagues have said, a lot of my teachers already think I'm irrelevant. <laughs> I mean, in reference to themselves, because they're apparently doing such a bad job. So I have to explain to my audience when I make that statement that by that I mean where the teach, where the students working collaboratively or in, and individually can run with it. They now have the tools to look for the artifacts of their learning and to build upon that, construct something, and eventually say, Oh, well, here's what I've done. Here's what I've done. Can I, now can I get some feedback? Or, you know, because even the reflective media diary is a feedback-free activity. They do it, no teacher intervention, until they submit it, where we have to give it a grade at the very end of the academic year. So you know, if we go back to the notion of authenticity, you know, so you see, they're, they're working with, on their own, uh, in the diary at least, and in, in the tutorials, but they're working on their own with events that are happening now in the community, not historically, but even historically, it's good to look at, but 
we have protests, we have virus, whatever. Those are obvious, you know, unique uh, phenomena of the past uh, uh, 12 months in Hong Kong. We don't have that all the time. But we constantly have demonstrations and, and you know, protest marches in Hong Kong. And they have often featured in the Reflective Media Diary and on final examinations. We have defamations being spewed in public and in the newspapers and in the LegCo uh, regularly, but no one may pick it up. But only if you're attuned to it, if you're legally, if you've studied your, the law well, now you can, now you have the ability to pick that out, whereas previously you didn't. Now compare this to somebody who studies contract law in under in a conventional course. Uh, you, you know, you as you know, you what's on the exam, what topics, you know, the hypotheticals, and try to get to the point where you consider like master this kind of an exam, and once it's done, it's done. And it has nothing to do with what you will do in the future, nothing at all, because of the hypothetical nature of most of the assessments that you've been trying to become good at. Remember, assessment is a great influence on student learning activity. It could be the sole sometimes influence on student learning activity. So if you have assessments that require students to be good at hypotheticals, that's what they'll do. They'll start to become very good at hypotheticals. Yeah, exactly. And how seriously will they take their learning when they know that what they're being asked to do is to become good hypothetical questions invented by the teacher? So yeah. very many reasons to move away from that. How can what, what, how can we create authenticity? Now, if we have a lot of resources, we can, uh, can we can, in law we can have a clinical legal education. But we don't have a lot of resources. We, clinical legal education, which is a superior form of learning, uh, is is simply not available at scale because of the cost. Experiential learning, yes, yes, also good and superior if proper if well designed, but that's also resource intensive. And, and see, students will only take it seriously if it carries assessment weight. So we have to ensure that any experiential learning is, is designed so that it can do that. It can be assessed fairly. But here, I, I sort of tripped upon, uh, you know, the idea that the news could provide a source. Uh, other things can too. The environment can. So Philip will know, and I don't know if at the conference at the symposium a few years ago, yeah. spoke about the photo essay. But students in this course are also required to take their cameras and go out and find tort law in, the, in Hong Kong. I remember that. Photograph it and, and, and legally analyze it. This is not a game. This is like they have to bring the legal tools with them. They have to have the legal acumen. That they have to know the doctrine. They have to be able to really understand it in order to recognize it when it's out there in the community. So here you are, students. Now you won't hear about this anywhere else in any law course around the world, Test Students with their cameras looking for law. <laughs> <laughs> And it's it an works. innovative idea. I love the idea. Yeah, it can be done in almost any course. Can it be done in English? For can it can it be done in the work that you guys do? And the answer is my my answer is yes. Oh, I'd love to hear it, please. Now this is what I've been waiting for the moment. <laughs> the test can retire. <laughs> <laughs> the inspiration for what I do in in tort law, and I do other things, but I've only just touched on a few things there that are different and have to do with authenticity, but. Uh, in both learning and assessment, but probably the inspiration came in part from Philip and in part from the, some of the uh, some of the learning activities that he had told me about uh, many years ago when we were playing snooker. Mm, I knew that snooker was good for something. Yeah, and, and then when I was doing my weekend uh, country park walks and I would encounter signage, for instance, you know, put up by the government of Hong Kong, instructing people to do this or not do this or whatever, and I would read yes. it. And of course, I'd say like, well, wait a minute, who wrote that? This just doesn't make sense. <laughs> in, 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 or it's just plainly grammatically unsound, or sometimes it tells you to do the wrong thing. Uh, out at 
uh, Shek O, if you go to the toward the headland, there's some signage which doesn't which warns you against walking uh, over the stepping over the uh, the rail and going onto the rocks. So everybody goes there anyway, but to get closer to the to the to the sea, just like behind you right now, Tess. And 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 so the sign said something incredible. I have it in my camera somewhere, but it says something like, um, you know, jump over the rocks and you and you will whatever. I I I, I don't. <laughs> And you will die. <laughs> yeah, it was actually, if you read it literally, it was encouraging you to take great risks. And so, so, but I see this everywhere, almost everywhere in Hong Kong, because English is, first of all, it's not the first language of everyone, and, and, and it apparently is not necessarily the first language of government, or at least a lot of the people that write the instructions, the signs, what you hear, even sometimes radio announcements. So when you hear what they say when you get on the MTR, or when you hear something, yeah, a lot of strange things like about using, not having magnetic balloons in the MTR. You ever heard that one? Yes, yes, I've, I've seen that one. But um, when I look at the written world, you know, uh, uh, when we go out and just look at that, I see so many examples of what I would call, you know, unsound grammar or the use of terminology that's inappropriate or the structure, you know, which, which in the aggregate conveys the wrong meaning. If I was, just as I do in tort law, I'd ask as a project, my students to keep a diary and to assemble it, but from whatever sources, whether it's the internet or, or I would say, make it Hong Kong based. So don't, you know, go to the internet, some website in, in San Francisco, but whatever, you don't even need to use the internet. Better to, to do most of your, get most of your materials as a student learning English from the physical world around us even even in the bathrooms, you know, it says slippery floor, slippery when wet, or something like that. Caution floor, slippery when wet. Now, in law, we have broken that uh, phrase down. Uh, my students have done so, and even the judges have done so, because the meaninglessness of such a statement. We all know floors are slippery when wet. That we don't need to tell us that. What we need to know, what would be helpful, would be to know: Is this floor slippery right now? because then I'll know whether to go in or not. It's a legal trick used by an attempt, an, an attempt to, to avoid liability by the occupier by putting up this yellow sign. And that way, whenever anybody does happen to fall, because of whatever reason, because nobody's been cleaning the floor or somebody's, nobody monitors the floor, they can say, oh, we had a sign. Uh, but judges have rejected that, rightly so. But in, as, a langu as a linguistic thing, it's actually a bit of an exercise there because students are sometimes surprised. And then they started to photograph all sorts of signs that are put up by the University of Hong Kong and, and by, uh, you know, uh, occupiers of buildings, directing us this or that and wondering, what does it really mean? Now, sometimes the grammar, there's no problem with the grammar, but there is a problem with the meaning, uh, the interplay of the English language meaning and you know, the legal effect of it. But I see so many examples all around Hong Kong, sort of like uh, what, what you guys as experts would recognize and probably be able to categorize as certain forms of missteps being made by the writer or the speaker. Uh, and assuming as I do, because you know, you can imagine that learning English as we did in Canada, uh, you know, as children was a fairly intuitive, uh, not terribly structured thing. Uh, I don't remember all of the terminology, the prepositions and the... As native speakers, we don't learn language that way. Yeah, okay. So here, I, I believe that in, your, in some of your courses, 
there you would be you would be uh, showing students uh, guiding students by reference to certain kinds of common errors which could be characterized as this error or that error am i right if you do that because then i would say to students go out there find out keep a diary break down what you are finding explain why what what you find objectionable whether from a grammatical or from a meaning perspective and then and then keep that and you do it right away you don't do it at the end of the year you do it synchronously you do it you, i give my students 48 hours to do the thinking and the writing after they identify the news report but here too the diary shows they can take a photograph of whatever they're looking at or they found somewhere you know whether it's down by the star fair or the um the, the outlying ferry appears where there's lots of examples of this as well or country parks are really good for this but so too are public toilets buildings banks everywhere uh and then and then the, you know to, to capture that and then to build on that then they start to become critical readers i think i'm, I'm a little worried about i'm a little worried about students going into public toilets with cameras but <laughs> <laughs> they already do Phil. They, they, also, they already do but i think that's also, a, a really nice idea i think there are things that students can yeah take from outside can notice outside and which perhaps we don't take enough uh, notice of at the moment very often we've got the learning materials in class we stick to those but you know that idea for students to actually go out and notice things for themselves where they are these signs or, or other aspects I, I think that's a, a very nice idea definitely something that should be given more more reflection sorry Tess I think I interrupted a question did I no no in fact this was directed more at you because I know you're involved in a project called uh, students as partners um, but is this something that um, if you got feedback from students that they would like so-called more authentic tasks. Um, Go on, Rick, sorry. Philip, Philip, yeah. is, I can't answer this one for you. Only you can answer that question. Oh. Without, without I'm, I'm taking advantage of my position here as the interviewee, uh, I, I, I would just say that um, the, uh, I think you'll all agree that student learning will take place when they have some uh, degree, even large degree of control over the learning process, over the identification of, of the artifacts of learning, over when, the, when, they, when they learn independently. When students will, I know we all want students to become independent learners, but, but they can only become independent learners uh, if the way that we design the learning requires them to be learning independently. Uh, we, we can, again, we can, only ask our, we can only expect our students to become critical thinkers if we design the materials accordingly, we can't say to the students, well, I want you to become a critical thinker. Now listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> we want our students to be creative thinkers and learners. We must design our learning and particularly our assessment activities in such a way that it requires them to start to think creatively and be rewarded for it. So we need to empower the students. And so when you spoke to Philip there about partners, uh, students as partners, uh, yes, uh, this kind of fits that because you've got to get students making choices in how they learn and assess. They, they should be, they should ideally be given the opportunity to make some selection, uh, not just playing to their strength, but maximizing their their learning opportunities. Uh, and and uh, and so they are in 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 a sense going to be partnering with you if they can participate in that. And then when they bring back to you the artifacts and their discoveries and then and then show it and explain it they really have done it they have they have already done what it is that we want them to become independent learners and i would go so i would go so far as to say risking the cliche 
lifelong learners. They can become so if we design the materials that that we require them to you know engage with appropriately. It can't be done easily. It has to be done mindfully, thoughtfully. It has to. Be, you really ha have to think about how in your discipline, architecture or or engineering or medicine, how you can do that. It can be done, uh, but thought has to be and design. And, and, and this, it's all about design. Ultimately, it is about how you design it. And, and at that excellence thing, uh, uh, excellence conference, um, Philip, you may remember one of the questions that came up. I don't know if you were there. Was um, well, you had the speaker from Australia saying that he wanted his his goal as vice chancellor for teaching at this university was that his that the teachers would become inspirational teachers, inspiring students. And I intervened and said, "Well, with all respect, I don't think that is the way to think about this. How on earth are you going to make all of your teachers inspirational teachers? The rank and file academic who perhaps can't even communicate very well, but is a great scholar, is, is just not going to reach that standard." But what we, what is more important than that is design. And anybody, doesn't matter how charismatic or not charismatic you are, can, not anybody, but some intelligent person can design so that students will learn in these ways. And whether the teacher is inspiring or charismatic or exciting, a great speaker, uh, it doesn't matter. And let's face it, most teachers are not great speakers and they cannot become at this stage in their career. So empowering, partnering, getting the students involved and putting it in their hands. And I would also identify one other feature that is we want them to become lifelong learners. Then they have to develop a habit of, of learning and thinking in the way that is suitable to their discipline or their profession or whatever. And also critical, not just, it's, it's not that the, the learning should be discipline specific. It's not that we are training these students to become architects or lawyers or engineers, but rather, we bear in mind what it is that their professional goals and professional aims are. We don't teach students to the profession's needs. We don't, we don't, we're not led by that, but we bear it in mind so that students feel that, that this is all relevant. And then it, we put it in their hands so that they can do it by themselves already so that therefore they will, after they graduate, continue to behave in that way. And, and we can honestly say as a university or as a program that we are training our students to become lifelong learners. As it is, it's just a university cliche for the most part. I'm, I'm glad you answered that for me as well, Rick. Had that been me answering, would be no, nowhere near as eloquent. Uh, I think we're running out of time there, so we, we better wrap it up. But there was a lot of very interesting themes you brought up there, obviously with the lifelong learning, sustainability, um, you know, that student-centeredness of a lot of this. I think these are really important themes a way of thinking about assessment, a way of thinking about the teaching and learning that definitely a lot of our listeners can um, can reflect on and, and take away. Do you have any and final it's certainly thoughts? Very, oh, sorry, but it's just one more thing. It's certainly a very um, challenging uh, prospect, though, because as you said, there's this uh, resistance at all levels. Um, and I, I think it's, it's definitely something to work towards. But very inspiring, Rick. And yes, any last things you'd like to say, Rick? Uh, no, I think I've said enough, Tess. <laughs> I know I have because I think I've dominated the the airplay here. So, so which is I, great. I, which you're is you're the exactly expert. what we, we wanted. From you. We want to hear from you, Rick. <laughs> yes. We okay. Well, thank you all. Thank you all. And by the way, can I commend all of you, Patrick, and all of you, uh, on this uh, particular um, mode, or this particular method of uh, of a podcast? Because the the when I was when you you know, informed me that it would be this Zoom video exchange. 
but that it is eventually formulated, uh, formed into a podcast, an audio uh, uh, um, event, uh, then it, it, it really opens things up. I mean, it's good to see and chat and talk and relax in this way, uh, but then uh, uh, I don't worry about whether my hair is getting, you know, <laughs> or just, you know, it changes things. It changes things. It's a good way to do it. I believe it. I do a lot of interviews, like video cast interviews, not a lot, but some, and I'm not always that comfortable, but it's a very nice format. Nobody can see we're drinking. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Teachers Lift. Teachers Lift is a growing collaborative project created to help give teachers a space to share professional experiences and practices. This podcast was created by colleagues from the Center for Applied English Studies at the University of Hong Kong, the Center for Language Education at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and the English Language Center at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University. We hope you can support this effort by letting us know you're listening. Just log in to teacherslift.com and find links to most social media platforms where you can like and subscribe. If you subscribe to this podcast using the app of your choice, you'll be notified whenever we post new episodes. Thanks again for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time on Teachers Lift. <laughs>